KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. Summer learning loss, where the long summer vacation leads to the loss of some academic skills and knowledge in students, is a real issue for just about every child, but it hits certain groups harder than others. We wanted to learn more about this learning loss and how districts, teachers, parents can try to address it. So we caught up with Lindsay Dworkin, Senior Vice President for Policy and Communications with NWEA, a not-for-profit organization that supports students and educators. So when we focus on the idea of learning loss. Uh, This is something that's kind of universal. Anyone that goes to a school in a standard U.S. calendar, this is kind of something we all experience to to one form or another? Yeah. So at, at the highest level, summer learning loss is pretty basic to understand. Every, essentially every student or an average American student experiences somewhere between, you know, 15 and 35% um, loss over the summer. So when you look at which to put a finer point on it means they take a test at the um, in the spring and then they take the same test in the fall. They score 15 to 30 percent lower on the test in the fall on the same content. They knew, but unpacking that, there's a whole lot of nuance. So which students and how important it is for their overall growth trajectory is where all of the detail, sort of all of the power and what you might do about that come in. Before we kind of talk about different groups, I'm curious, is this the same? With a first grader as it is with an 11th grader, is there, do we have documented, like, does it get worse as you get older? Does it get better? Uh, You know, do we have a feel for that? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So growth tends to be greater in younger grades than in older grades. So if you sort of have a scale and stack student learning across from kindergarten all the way up through 12th grade, students make more ground in the earlier grades in general. Because of that, the learning loss is greater in the younger grades. But I think it may be more a reflection of the greater growth potential in those grades than it is actually that there's something meaningful happening between older grades and younger grades. And to look at another kind of line on that, is learning loss more likely when it comes to things like you know, history, English, where a lot of it is retaining facts and rules and ideas, or is it in things maybe like, you know, math, where it's more of a process of how to do something, or is it kind of a cross-section across the board? That's a great question. I think it's it tends to be greater in math and actually learning loss, which is interesting, and that pattern has held up throughout the pandemic, that math has been hit harder than reading generally, and earlier grades have been hit harder than later grades. So I think there's been less ability to put a fine point that fine point on that over the summer months. But um, but yes, I think math for whatever reason and unpacking the reasons is, you know, been I think a challenge for researchers over the years. Um, math tends to take a greater hit. So when we talk about learning loss, everybody deals with it, but I imagine there are groups that it hurts more or deal with more or lose more than than others. Can you kind of give us context of, of who is hurt the most by this? Yeah. So this is actually far more complicated than... Um than you might think. So in fact, a a really recent study done by the research team at NWEA looks specifically at English learners, students with disabilities, and rural students, and followed their growth from kindergarten to fourth grade, and looked at summer versus the school year, and found that for those students, um, 
two things were true. One, during the school year, so fall to spring test scores, they grew as fast or faster than their peers, which was itself. And I'd love to unpack that because I think that is a super exciting finding, particularly for students who by definition face obstacles to learning. Um, But in the summer, slid so much further than their peers that despite the school year growth, achievement gaps either were sustained or grew over time. So that was true for all of the groups I mentioned. That was true for English learners, students with disabilities, and rural students. Um, You of course, for at least English learners and students with disabilities, these are students who come into kindergarten already with an achievement gap with their um, peers who are not English learners and not students with disabilities. But the, again, the summer slide is so great that over time, the gap the gap widens. The story is a little more complicated or less clear, actually, for um, student, historic, other historically underserved student groups. So students of color and low-income students in particular. Researchers who've looked at this, including some at my organization, have not seen racial achievement gaps or socioeconomic achievement gaps widen over the summer in ways that you might expect. So while those students certainly do lose learning over the summer, it tends to, it's not at a differential rate or pace from, say, white students or students who are in higher income schools. You mentioned those first three groups that, you know, do really well during the school year, but then have the backslide. Is there hypothesis? Like if we were to unpack that a little bit as to, you know, I can kind of in my head, and I don't really, not so much for the rural, but for the English learners and the dis- uh, students with disabilities, there's probably a mindset that I have to work really hard. So I can see them pushing past, but then why there's so much pullback? And am I crazy in my thought process of why they might be doing so well? I think it's, I mean, definitely not crazy in your thought process. I think it may have to do with English learners and students with disabilities are identified for and receive a lot of special services when they're in their school year, right? So they, students with disabilities have IEPs, they get all sort of special programming and um, support designed to meet their particular needs. English learners similarly have special um, attention paid to their academics in ways that other students don't. And it seems to be working. I mean, sort of broadly speaking in national trends, students who get that kind of attention and receive those services are growing. Um, I think when those students, though, are disconnected from their school environment, they not only don't have the school community they have and all of the regular academic supports that an average student gets, but they don't get any of their supplemental services either. It's just particularly detrimental to their, their ability to retain their learning throughout that period. And I guess, is there a hypothesis with the rural students? No. And what's super interesting about the rural students, we've done a lot of discussing this internally, um, rural students actually enter kindergarten with slightly higher achievement than their non-rural peers, which was a surprise. So with students with disabilities and English learners, students enter, you know, there's already achievement gap with with other students who are not in those categories. Rural students enter at a slight, I mean, it's very slight, but slightly higher achievement level. And then over time while they're in school and then over the summer, an achievement gap develops and grows. So no, it's, I mean, I think, you know, the, for analogizing to students with disabilities and English learners, rural students also struggle, I think, to get access to the same kinds of quality programs and um, services in rural schools. It's just harder to staff them. Those schools have few, often have fewer resources. So if I were to pose a guess, I think it probably has to do with the kinds of programs and supports available in in rural schools compared to sort of schools in more populous areas that are bigger and have more funding and more staffing support. 
So to to address this, because you know, as we said, this is some I remember, you know, thing learning things in the spring, and then the next year, kind of like, uh, you know, I mean, we've all been there. How can you start to address this? And let's maybe talk overall first before we kind of maybe drill down on those groups where we see the the most backsliding. Yeah, well, I think we should start by just acknowledging what a missed opportunity summer is. I think tr- sort of for for generations, I think traditional system leaders at the state level all the way down to the school level just haven't focused on summer with the same attention they give the school year. I think there's lots of political and structural and other reasons for that. But I think, of course, kids don't stop being kids over the summer. Right. And their learning doesn't stop over the summer, either in a positive or negative direction. So I think acknowledging that the summer is a critical time in student learning is a really important first step and a really powerful time to do that, given the just huge influx of federal recovery resources that are sitting with districts and states. So, you know, if if money can solve this problem there's money. And that is so rarely the case in particularly public education that I think it's a it's a really exciting time to say summer's critical, particularly in light of the really disproportion of the pandemic, which we haven't even talked about yet on some of these same students. And there's real power in um, deciding to, in, to invest in summer and summer learning is a really important next step. How about just, do you have any, any things that families can do? Are there you know, I mean, I obviously, if the schools offer programs, take advantage of them. But are there things that parents can just encourage to just, you know, and maybe not make it seem like, mom, why am I doing homework over the summer? But just things to maybe kind of help shore things up? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think all the things that apply to parenting during the school year also apply to the summer. I mean, even things as basic as read with your kid, keep them excited about learning, help them read. Um you know, I, it's it's been interesting that there's actually counterintuitive, at least for me, even in this sort of pandemic and pandemic recovery period, there's a lot of resistance from parents in anything that looks like mandatory summer school. Um, and so that's been one of the struggles that school systems have had over the years, even the ones that do recognize the importance of summer and think about standing up summer programming, certainly anything where students are required to show back up and that disrupts camp plans and vacation plans. And, you know, we are so ingrained in this traditional school calendar. Um, But I think that the sort of natural encouragement of student learning, the take your kids to museums, the take your kids to, you know, to work with you, even if it's virtual, keep reading with your kids, expose that, you know, do science experiments on your kitchen table. I think all of that is valuable. Um, I also think there are, of course, lots of enriching summer programs and experiences that parents have for generations sought out for their kids and enrolled their kids at least in at least those that have the resources um, sort of wherewithal to do that. And that's another challenge in, I think, addressing some of the summer gaps is that so many students do get enrolled by their families and a whole variety of enriching experiences. And it's the kids who are left behind out of that who are sort of the ones that schools are trying to figure out how to serve. And that's just presents a, some challenging dynamics. Time to take a break. We will continue our conversation with Lindsay Dworkin right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back continuing our conversation with Lindsay Dworkin. From a district standpoint, you mentioned that a lot of places are flush with 
cash from the government as a result of the Recovery Act. You know, in a perfect world, what what should districts, if anybody from a district's listening to this, what should they strive for in their programs to do the most good to try to blunt that learning loss as much as possible? Yeah, I well, I think um, they should start by, you know, we can talk a little bit more about this, but start by really understanding which kids in their district were hit hardest by the pandemic. And I think one of the great surprises to our research team and digging into our data, and we've got, you know, what our sort of signature assessment, 25% of third through eighth graders take it across the country. So we've just got really good national data. It continues to be a surprise to us how much the impact of the pandemic varies by geographic location, by demographic, by percentage of time a district was in person versus virtual in their instruction. And so I think starting with a deep dive into data to say, which are the kids I really need to serve? Which are the kids where an additional loss over the summer is going to set them back even farther than they are now, where they really cannot afford you know, continued backslide? And then to match that up with evidence-based interventions, you know, it's it's not rocket science. There's a whole bunch of just district leaders already out there leading on this and some state leaders. High dosage tutoring, for example, is something that is being widely sort of talked about and cited as a highly effective intervention for students. Um, double dosing students in math that works obviously during the school day, but also as a potential summer intervention is really effective. The challenge with all of these is staffing. Right. It's it's staffing and then it's getting the right students, the students who need to be there enrolled and engaged um, and just attending. So even, you know, of course, the district's work is not done. Even they can solve, crack the staffing nut, get programs stood up, having then enough being able to get students and families engaged, actually bring their kids every day to some multi-week summer program is in itself itself a challenge. How about for those those groups specifically that we talked about off the top that you know, suffer the most from summer loss? Is there anything that you didn't just describe or or dissect that could be especially helpful for those groups? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I feel like one I'm not, you know, perfectly qualified to answer, but I think that, you know, as we were saying, the, the magic for those students seems to be in the combination of connection with their school and all of the regular academic support and instruction that you know, every student receives plus the special services and support. So I think, I mean, to me, the, you know, obvious answer to that is then finding a way to continue some of those special services and supports when students aren't in school. Um, and I, I, you know, that's, that's a tricky thing to do. There's a whole lot of federal compliance around it. And, so, you know, there's, there's the money concerns, but even if at least temporarily the money concerns are not as big of a problem, the staffing concerns and the sort of operational concerns. But I think in the, the long term, as we think about the long game of recovery and also the long game of just really rising to the opportunity, the missed opportunity that is currently summer, I think for, for students who get special services, which is a growing number of students in our national systems, um, finding a way to provide them with the services they need over the summer feels to me really critical to changing the long-term academic trajectory of, of these students. Because honestly, we, we seem to have cracked, I mean, we seem to be successful. Our wonderful heroic schools and districts are successfully educating students with disabilities and English learners during the school year. They're doing great. Like our data says they're having great success. And if the, it looks, you know, from the data, like the only way to change the 
academic trajectory of these students over their lifetime is figuring out how to make sure they don't lose it all in the summer and then some. To that point, and I know what I'm about to say has as much chance of happening as me finding a unicorn, but would we be better served if we changed the school year and didn't have the long summer and switched to some sort of a a calendar where we're on f- three and a half months off for three weeks on for three and a half months off for three, three weeks. Like I said, this is, you know, but if we really, really wanted to dig into this and maintain educational momentum, you know, are we doing ourselves a disservice by pulling up stakes for two and a half months and then expecting the kids to be able to hit the ground running the next year? Uh, (laughs) That is a super fascinating and important question. And I think one that doesn't have, you know, an easy answer. I think, I think, yes. Um, yes. You know, there's all, as you say, all kinds of logistical and political and operational challenges with doing any of that. But I think a system that was of course, originally based on the agrarian calendar and leaves time for students to help in the fields at critical months and all of that is clearly seems a crazy way to be running education systems in the, in our modern world. Um, But I think there are, and and I I guess I would also say, you know, having not done the research on this myself, it seems unlikely that just saying, well, there should be no gap at all. And we should just have kids, Never mind, kids are going to not stop, you know, go all the way straight through the summer is probably not a, you know, productive way to think about student learning and understanding that there's all sorts of things that students do out of school that can also be valuable, but clearly a more balanced approach that doesn't have such a prolonged break where we have just study after study documenting how detrimental that is to student learning and a growing number of historically underserved students in this country who don't have parental resources or, um, you know, or even access to opportunities because, for example, they live in rural communities where they can get, even if they're able to pay, really high quality enrichment or academic opportunities in the summer. And so, I mean, we're, we're seeing the data say this is a problem. Um, so, Yes, school calendar would be, <laughs> and and we can we can talk a little bit. There's some schools with so with all the the federal education recovery funds on the table. There are some districts that are trying to make really modest extensions to their school year with almost no success. So I think um, if I have this right, that in Los Angeles Unified, which suffered partly because they were remote for such an enormous part of the you know the previous school year, and they have a huge population of historically underserved students was trying, the administration was trying to extend the school day by four days, which is a pretty modest number given the the scale of the summer and the scale of the disruptions we've seen. And I think have only successfully managed to secure four optional days. I don't know if they're optional exactly for students and teachers or what the whole situation is, but they're just enormous political and structural difficulties with even even what feels like a tiny incremental change, which is a handful of days at the beginning or the end of the summer. Yeah. And like I said, it's it's never going to happen. But I mean, if if people that understand this, like you, if you guys were to start something from scratch and you all sat around a table and somebody said, you know what, this is a great idea. Let's just make sure we, we don't do anything for two and a half months in the middle. Everybody would look at each other and go, that's absurd. Like, you know, it's it's just amazing how how it's grown, how, how it's become what it's become. 
<laughs> it is amazing. And, you know, and, and, and frustrating because like so many things in education, you've got just this, the data paints such a clear picture from every source that this is a bad idea. And yet there seems to be no way to do anything about the underlying structural problem. So we're stuck with sort of piecemeal putting together things that might try to help make whatever the current policy is not quite so detrimental to student learning as opposed to, you're right, getting to start from scratch and design a system that would make more sense. And I'm curious, we kind of touched on this a little bit uh, early on, but with so much remote learning and just a pandemic going on, uh, is there concern? I don't know if there's hard data yet, but is there concern that learning loss has been even worse the last couple years uh, just because maybe kids aren't getting as far as they were, you know, your average third grader wasn't progressing as far as the average third grader was before that. Uh, Is there a feel for that? Oh, absolutely. And way more than just a feel. Speaking of concrete numbers, we've, I said, our research team has done really extensive investigation into what the pandemic learning loss has, has looked like. And painted a pretty clear picture of what students have been experiencing. So sort of top line there, it's been a really tough time to be a student in America and, you know, around the world, of course, for lots of reasons. But academically, I think that, you know, the interesting part of this story has been, well, every student has experienced some level of loss, right? No, basically, you know, we're able to project how much growth students in a typical year or two-year period should make and look at how much, um, look at the gains of students from the last year or last two years and found, you know, sort of on average, all students are underperforming how much they would have grown. So it's not that students aren't like learning anything. They're not literally farther behind than they were two years ago. But if you scope out how much they would have grown and then you look at what actually happened, um, they're way underperforming growth projections. That story, as we talked about um, a few minutes ago, gets is um, generally worse in younger grades. So younger students suffer more um, more disruption than older students, and generally worse in math than in reading. But perhaps even more importantly, as we think about recovery, it was dramatically, dramatically worse for students in poverty, for um, many other historically underserved students, including Black and Latino students. And I mean, by by just orders of magnitude. So I think when we, and, and in addition, in some recent research that folks at my organization conducted along with Harvard and the American Institutes of Research, the effects of remote learning are now becoming increasingly clear. So, stu- so students who were in a remote environment for more than half of last year suffered much greater learning loss than students whose districts were largely in person. So to no way to do any finger pointing or second guessing past decisions. I think there were obviously lots and lots of factors that went into making schools, you know, open or close. And but now the situation is uh, many sort of students, um, low income students and students of color were both more likely to be in um, schools that were remote. And then when they were in schools that were remote from the majority of the year, were more likely to have suffered greater loss. So sort of it's a double whammy for those students. Um, and I think, I think just how dispro- I, I think the the broader public and system generally, sort of school district state leaders, have a sense that learning's been disrupted. That this has not been an easy couple of years. But I think the extent of the losses for historically underserved students is still not widely understood. Um, and the fact that that just just how disproportionate the losses were in the sense that like when we look to recovery, when we look towards spending the resources, 
We want to make sure those are targeted at students who really need them most. That's going to, that's, you know, you can't look at national trends for that. You're really going to like district leaders in particular, are really going to have to look deep in their own student population. What happened over the last couple of years, unpack their data and see, these are the kids I really need to focus on. These are the kids that need the help the most. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.